episode 145, Barbarism. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a November 2nd, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about Kansas artifacts. Something's wrong cause my mind is Today, barbers exclusively cut men's hair, and they are few and far between. 100 years ago, barbering was big business, and it required the right equipment. Join Assistant Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a barber chair sales model. In the 1920s, barbers cut men and women's hair and shaved faces using a frightening straight edge. Work lasted from sunup to sundown. Learn why this chair had to be a cut above the rest. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. Got a devil's haircut in my mind. Then we go behind the scenes with digital archivists to get a close look at 200 rare early photographs that depict some of the first settlers to arrive in Kansas. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany. Built by a militant German emperor, stolen by a French despot, exploited by the Nazis and bombed by the Allies, this gate has earned its place as an international icon. But first, barbarism. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today we are discussing a technological innovation in male hygiene, a barber chair, and it's actually a sales model, mm-hmm. um, which means that the chair looks like the huge, cumbersome barber chair of the 1920s, except it's miniaturized into yeah. a tiny model, which is actually sitting on the table with us. It's uh, less than a foot tall, don't you think? Yeah, less than a foot tall. Um but intentionally built to like almost replicate in every capacity, just proportionally smaller. What is a barber? Because um, there's a lot of terms. There's hairdresser, stylist, barber. What's the difference? And why does a barber need a special chair? I think it's interesting that today we think of a barber as a man who cuts men's hair. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the stereotype. Is that not the, that's that not the standard? Well, um, it is today, but... But uh, technically, a barber is just anybody who cuts hair. Um, so we've kind of evolved to that situation. But um, in the 19-teens, barbers cut men's hair. And in the 20s, they started to cut women's hair because it became the fashion to have short, a bob cut mm-hmm. in the 20s. And I think, really, it's after the 20s that you start to see that separation between a barber and a hairstylist, somebody, or a beauty salon. Beauty is not something apparently men aspire to. Men cannot uh, cannot do it, <laughs> I guess. So you had to have that separate salon for women. So prior to the 1920s, who was cutting women's hair? Uh, not many they people. They just 
just didn't cut it. Well, if you had to have it cut for an illness or something, you could go to a, you know, because they'd have really, really long hair down to their knees. I mean, they didn't cut it. They might trim it a little bit. But if you had to have it cut for some reason, you'd go to a barber, I guess. Uh-huh. There just there weren't beauty salons to speak of. Um, and, and regarding why they need a special chair, I think there's probably two main reasons. One is the comfort of the customer. And because you're in kind of an awkward position, mm-hmm. you know, when you're getting your hair cut or washed or whatever. And, and the other thing is the access for the barber, because the barber had to, you know, tilt your head back if you were getting a shave. Mm-hmm. Uh, because barbers did, you know, they, they're cutting hair. It's facial hair, but mm-hmm. that's what a shave is. It's, you know, cutting hair. And I think... Um Probably the key part to a barber chair is the hydraulic that lifts the chair up and mm-hmm. down, right? Because yeah. if you think about how a barber does their job, for us, we go in, we get our hair cut, we go out. They're cutting hair all day, so they have to be able to manipulate in their head to where, so it's comfortable for them. Sure. Otherwise, they're going to get exhausted after the first five haircuts because yeah. they're doing this all day. And imagine a shave, too. I mean... We're talking about the time of a straight razor, which is, uh, you know, if you can picture kind of like a horror movie, uh-huh. <laughs> it's a long open blade with a handle on the end of it, um, straight out of Sweeney Todd, the <laughs> Demon Barber, Fleet Street. So you could really do some damage to people. Right. Those things were very sharp. So you had to be able to adjust their head and turn their head and get all the angles in, uh, angles of a shave on a face uh, while still protecting your customer. Mm-hmm. Barbarism, I like that word, I think I coined it. (laughs) Barbarism appears to have been a booming industry in the early 20th century. You mentioned earlier that uh, barbers aren't really as common these days. Mm -hmm. Why were they so prevalent early in the century? Well, a lot of it had to do with the the lack of a safety razor, and people weren't very comfortable. Not everybody was comfortable cutting their own facial hair, mm-hmm. men. So and a shave uh, wasn't that expensive. So you could go in once or twice a uh, month, let's say once every two weeks probably, and get a fairly inexpensive shave and a haircut, and you didn't have to mess with that open razor. And especially in the 20s, there was, you know, it was good times, really. There was more income coming in, and people um, felt like they could afford um, to go and have a really nice shave and a haircut. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the industry encouraged that at least once a week. Um, and you had mentioned, uh, I think, in your research, you came across some statistics that in Topeka in, like, the late 1920s, there was, like, 90-some barbershops in town. Yeah, it was an explosion, and there were, I think the population was about 68,000. Right. It was under 70,000. So you think about, wow, that's a lot of barbershop for the population. That's, but they didn't all make it into the 30s. The Great Depression took care of a lot of that. How did the Great Depression impact the, the, the barber industry? My understanding of what, in especially many rural communities, happened was they went back to almost like a trade and barter system. There just wasn't a lot of cash floating around. So you didn't have expendable income to go to the barber shop. And when you look at a chair like this, that was an expensive piece of equipment for a barber to buy. This miniature chair was carried around by Topeka resident Edward Robinson. But Robinson was more than just a door-to-door salesman. Who was this guy? He came to Topeka from Chillicothe, Missouri, and he knew how to sell things. I I couldn't find out a lot of information on him in Missouri, but he was a salesman for some sort of a wholesale house. And, you know, he just came here at the right time. And he he may have sold um, barber equipment in Missouri. I don't know for sure. He came here at the right time and opened up a supply house. And he sold products of his own invention. He had something he called the Ruth 
razor. I don't know what that was. Um, they would do things in his supply house like sharpen scissors, and they sold electric clippers, which is kind of a big deal for the 20s, mm-hmm. I would imagine. And, of course, they sold barber chairs. Well, Robison couldn't carry around a barber chair when he's visiting these barber shops around town. He had to, like other salesmen of large pieces, he had to carry a model that had all the features of the original full thing in miniature. So that's what he was doing here. Uh, The family believes this chair was of his own invention. Uh, It could very well be. I just can't find any records that he ever got a patent for it. We do know that he was inventing other things like the Ruth razor. Mm -hmm. And also I found a newspaper article that claimed he had invented a manless bomb dropping aircraft during Hmm. the First World War. Um, And he had a lot of correspondence with the War Department over this, trying to get them to give him credit or actually build a thing. He just said he just wanted to save soldiers' lives. Uh And being the War Department, of course, they hemmed and hawed around. So I don't know that it was ever actually used. So he went from a a barber chair to... (laughs) A manless aircraft, a drone, I guess. To a drone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was a man ahead of his time, I guess. (laughs) Really was. Really was. So he, yeah, he he had a lot of irons in the fire. And um, so he opened this supply house. He he eventually got into training people on how to be barbers here in Topeka. Uh, The chair is a tiny version of the real thing. Uh, And as we we were looking at earlier, it it kind of functions. It Mm -hmm. uh, reclines. The headrests move. uh, It functions like the real thing. There's a footrest that's adjustable. Hydraulic pump. or Yeah, I guess hydraulic column, I guess you'd say. So were these sales models, is this a common thing? I mean, this concept mm-hmm. of the sales model, and, and is it, are they typically this, like, uh, articulable? Yeah, <laughs> realistic. Yeah. I mean, can yeah. you really, like, sales models, can you always kind of move them down and have them, uh, you know, do they do they replicate what the real thing is going to do? Yeah, they, they often are very realistic um, and replicate the actions. Um, we have actually a number of sales models in our collections. One, which is really cool, and it's on display in our gallery, is for a haystacker. Yeah. And that's still pretty big. You've seen it. It's like, mm-hmm. what, four feet long? It by, is a you know, large sales model. But the real ones are massive. I mean, they're huge. So you noticed this t- tiny chair while working among normal furniture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were probably just walking along, and you saw this in a tiny little chair. Yeah. Um, what was it about this chair that caught your attention? Well, I, I think it's just because it's so tiny, but it's so realistic. It looks like the other barber chairs in our collection, but it's tiny. And I think that it's well suited to a Ken doll. It is. It's, it looks like it's just waiting for a Ken doll uh-huh. to sit on it. If Ken had any hair that could be cut, yeah. <laughs> he would like you, this chair. Because if you remove his molded hair right now, <laughs> he's just going to have a hole in his head. <laughs> yeah, poor Ken. But he would make nice set dressing for this chair. In- indeed, yes. Um, All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the barber chair sales model. You're welcome. The subject of today's Kansas quiz is hot towels and barbershops. Why would a barbershop go through so many, even hundreds, of hot, wet towels every day? The answer when we return. Are shaking cold. These hands are meant to hold. In August, 
2011, the Kansas Historical Society's Archives Division uploaded nearly 200 rare daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, and tintype photographs to Kansas Memory, the institution's online digital repository. Many images were captured before and during the American Civil War, forming a unique look at Kansas at the dawn of the photographic age. Today, we go behind the scenes with digital archivist Ben Epps and Michael Church to find out why people look so ticked off in early photographs. Michael, there are over 200 images in this collection. Can you tell us what the images typically depict and how did the archives acquire this collection? Uh, well, well, most of the images are uh, portraits of some kind, uh, either formal or informal portraits. Just depict, you know, regular people uh, getting their pictures taken probably for family purposes. And uh, many of them are, are um, Union soldiers as well, so there are a lot of Civil War uh, photographs, um, some in Kansas regiments and some uh, from regiments uh, out of state. Um, there are a lot of children's portraits as well. Um, and um, Kansas military units, uh, mm -hmm. portraits of whole units like the 15th Cavalry, the 8th Cavalry, uh, uh, or, or also portraits of cowboys, um, either alone or uh, kind of in groups. Uh, one of the more famous is the uh, uh, portrait of uh, African-American cowboys that's uh, referred to in a lot of, it's been published a lot. Um, also, There's an image of, African, of an African-American yeah, cowboy yeah, in this collection? It's actually a tintype. Wow. Of, uh, to, it's, re, it's referred to as the African-American uh, kind of cowboy's tintype, but uh, one of them clearly looks like he has African-American heritage, and the other is kind of unclear. His ethnicity is unclear, but uh, it's, it's often published as an example of uh, African-American cowboys in history books. Um, and then, you know, there's some buildings and uh, I think a, a steam train and things like that. And a lot of the images are housed in some sort of case, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're typically cased, and, and that's part of uh, kind of this style of photography. You needed a case in order to, to view it properly. The cases can be, you know, very elaborate, mm -hmm. uh, usually wood cases with some kind of uh, uh, soft lining on the inside with elaborate carvings on the, on the outside. Uh, and, and we acquired these just various ways. Most of them probably came in with small do donations from families uh, over the years. Ben, please explain the difference between daguerreotype, ambrotype, and tintype. Because the, the, there's three different types of technology, and um, this collection is comprised of all three of these types. Well, daguerreotypes are the oldest type that we've got displayed here, and the easiest way to tell what a daguerreotype is is that they do have a mirrored surface based on how the images were made. It makes them a bit difficult to view compared to, say, the amber types or the tin types, but the quality of the image is possibly still the best photographic image around. It are you comparing, are you any, comparing any modern technologies? Really, even better than modern digital technology, you say the daguerreotype would be a I'd better so. resolution. It's, it's, it's grainless. Granted, they're much, much smaller, but they definitely have a, a certain quality that, when seen, is recognizable and how they captured what or whom was being photographed. Amber types are a collodion process and are basically a, a glass negative that's then black backing so that you can view the image as a positive. They, the way they, they'd expose them, they'd be underexposed and then oftentimes times bleached. 
to be able to view it. And then mm-hmm. tin types are on a simple sheet of um, thin iron, which were a very cheap and very, very popular form of photographs that could be mailed out easily. They didn't need to be cased. Oftentimes they were just in a paper envelope. So these early types of photo- photography, um, they didn't always hold up that well. Um, in fact, some, some of the early photographs are kind of explosive. Isn't that right? Or is that the negatives that are explosive? Some of the materials used in making these were also explosive, although they're pretty stable. The nitrate negatives are the negatives that are the most flammable that we deal with here. The photographs depict some impressive and at times infamous characters from Kansas history, like Sheriff Jones, who was a local sheriff that burned the city of Lawrence to the ground, and David Rice Atchison, who was a Missouri senator that once actually fired a cannon at a town in Kansas. Um, to both of you, uh, I want you to tell me, like, now you've seen, I mean, you probably have better knowledge of what's in the collection than anyone. Um, I'd like to. I'd like you each to tell me what images you found to be the most interesting. Uh, well, uh, there are a lot of very interesting images, and um, a lot of well-known uh, people are represented uh, in this collection, including uh, Wild Bill Hickok. We have a couple of, of uh, photos of him in the collection. Um, it, it's uncertain exactly when those were taken, but it could have been um, during his time early on in Kansas or uh, during his... Uh, service as a, a Union soldier in the Civil War. Um, and those, I think, were, um, they may have been donated by his niece. Wow. Uh, he had a, a niece that lived uh, quite late into the 20th century named Ethel, and she donated a collection to this that may have included um, these photos of uh, Wild Bill. Um, but also um, Dr. John uh, Brinkley's uh, family. We have quite a few yes. of uh, photos in this collection of his family, his parents, um, that are uh, quite interesting and, and provide um, some r- real uh, interesting visual kind of portraits of uh, what his life would have been like. And he was an infamous doctor in Kansas that practiced some questionable uh, medical tactics. The infamous goat gland doctor. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we also have Im- uh, photos of John Brown as well as um, another uh, many other notable people. But you know, some of the most interesting um, photos from my point of view are from just regular folks, uh-huh. uh, kind of family photographs. Um, th- there's a couple of some sisters, uh, Sally and Polly uh, Calvert, who, you know, th- the expressions uh, that some of these people have in the photos are just priceless. So, right. We, we were just talking about this earlier, and we noticed that men tended to fare better in these pictures. I mean, they often look quite dashing and debonair. And I mean, a lot of these guys, you think they're frontiersmen, but they, they sort of look like male models at times. Women... Didn't, and children did not fare so visually well in these pictures. And you referenced Polly and Sally. Yeah, that's Can you tell us a little bit about... <laughs> because they're quite striking when you look at these two ladies, Polly and Sally. Well, they're, they're older ladies, and they're, and they're dressed quite nice. And, and you can tell they come maybe from an aristocratic background uh, uh, in, a, in a higher social class. And, and they're very nice portraits, and they're, they're very well-dressed, and they have these white bonnets on. Um, but, you know, their expression is, is something that's quite unique. I've never quite seen a, a photographs like this. And it's particularly interesting because both of the sisters kind of share the same uh, share the same expression, so right. you, you'll have to go online to, to, get to see um, what we're talking about. I mean, they're a bit, they look like kind of brooding old men. Well, they, they kind of look like like men in drag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they have a, a, a kind of a Robin Williams in drag kind of uh, look to them. <laughs> 
while looking at these images, I began to notice some some consistencies. People often look look angry. Kids look a little creepy. Um, do you guys notice any other consistent trends, or, or can can you explain why people look angry or or look kind of um, sullen? Well, the exposures were much much longer than they would have been for anything taken today. So oftentimes they were literally strapped into the chairs in the photographer's studio to so prevent be, them from moving while the exactly. picture is being taken. They'd have devices that would hold their head in place. They look a bit like a horseshoe that would fit behind the head to keep their head still. Oh, things like that. So they no. probably were so they were cranky. <laughs> the, so they were cranky. Yeah. So yeah. So a lot of the pictures have this kind of mannequin-like quality, where the, you can tell the people are kind of rigid, and and it comes off. It looks very uncomfortable. But uh, others are surprisingly natural. Mm-hmm. Like uh, most of the Cyrus K. Holiday uh, photos we have, he's. It looks like the photo could have been taken, you know, yesterday, just like a snapshot. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, thanks for telling me about the um, photograph collection that's recently been digitized. Thank you. I'm Rebecca Martin with the answer to today's Kansas quiz. The question was, why would a barber use so many hot, moist towels? Because a hot towel wrapped around a customer's face opened up the pores and prepared facial hair for shaving. And it also felt really, really good, kind of like a facial. Laws went into effect in Kansas in the early 20th century governing the use of clean towels and equipment on customers after it was discovered that some shops were using the same towel on multiple people. To that we say, ew. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Education Director Mary Madden. Hello. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Brandenburg Gate, a historic columned gate in downtown Berlin. Mary, you want to give us a little background on this um, famous German gate? I would love to. Thank you, Merle. The Brandenburg Gate is named for a region in Germany. It is a 70-foot-tall triumphal gate in downtown Berlin. The iconic gate features 12, count them, 12 (laughs) massive columns and the quadriga, a chariot pulled by four horses. Commissioned by the King of Prussia in 1791, the gate celebrated a prolonged period of peace amid the militant culture of Prussia. Right, so it's kind of, I think it's kind of cool that it's a gate committed to peace, not a victory of a war necessarily. Very unusual. Yeah. Yeah. According to tradition, only German monarchs and foreign dignitaries could pass through the inner columns. The gate is located on Pariser Platz. Nice, Had to nice, practice that nice. one. A city square commemorating the German occupation of Paris in 1814. Berliners certainly had something to celebrate. But they never liked Napoleon. Yeah, they did not. In 1806, Napoleon defeated Germany and took the prize quadriga back to Paris. Napoleon had a thing for doing that. He was always stealing people's quadrigas. 
<laughs> he did it. For he his, did it with the ones from Venice as well. For his Quadriga collection. Yes. Quadriga collection. <laughs> well, these horses made some mile, had some miles on them <laughs> because eight years later, in 1814, the Germans defeated the French, which they loved, <laughs> and took the horses back. In 1945, the resilient gate withstood Allied bombing, which is amazing that destroyed nearly all other structures on the Parisa Platz. Mm -hmm. And if you look at photos, like it's literally, it's rubble around everything except the gate. It is truly amazing that, that anything survived all that bombing. Following World War II, the gate became a component of the Berlin Wall, boo hiss, <laughs> a physical wall dividing the socialist East with the capitalist West. In 1989, Germany was reunified Yay! And the Brandenburg <laughs> Gate shed its image of oppression and today stands as an icon of German power on the European continent. And just any old person can cross through it now because they let me go through it. So oh, cool. did you, you passed through the inner yeah, on a portions tour bus. of the... Whoa. Yeah. I'm jealous. Exciting, yeah. What did you think of it? Was it pretty breathtaking? Yeah, it was kind of cool. And the day we were there, it was kind of stormy and rainy, so the clouds were kind of dark in the background, so it made it really Did you say, out. oh, there's the quadriga? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was and like, then oh, curse wow. Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know that we passed under it. We got Our bus stopped, and we got to get out and take pictures and walk around it. So, Very nice. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mary. Now to the game. As a contestant, Mary, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and the Brandenburg Gate. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Uh, Nikhila, you want to go first? All right. Well, on June 12th, 1987, the Brandenburg Gate was the location of a famous speech about the end of communism that was delivered by President Ronald Reagan. And the speech is remembered now for the lines, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate, Mr. Gorbachev, bring down this wall. Um, Ronald Reagan is known for being a Democrat actor and a Republican president, and one of the first Republicans he supported was Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Republican from Kansas. Well, also in support of Eisenhower was William Lindsay White, who sent a telegram to Eisenhower um, encouraging him to throw his hat into the ring for president. And Eisenhower responded with a four-page letter saying, you know, it's really awesome that you think I should run. I'll consider it. Um, and, of course, William Lindsay White was the son of William Allen White. Very impressive. All right, mine. In 1919, William Allen White and his son, William Lindsay White, took a kind of an odd father-son trip through the battlefields of Europe, particularly in Germany, through the countryside, to kind of assess the damage after World War I. Joining them on their journey, this was the guy who actually led them around, was Berg McFall, a former Emporia Gazette reporter that had went on, he spent the last three months of the war embedded with Pershing's American Expeditionary Force. While with the AEF, McFall was assigned to a small civilian team tasked with, civil with facilitating peace talks between Prince Maximilian of Baden, who was the chancellor of, of the collapsing German government. So he was kind of the, a guy brought on at the last minute to try to maintain stability. But was stability. he at the Parisa Plutz? Uh, he lived near the Parisa okay. Plutz. Um, okay, so they went to go, so their job was to go see the chancellor. On November 9th, in 1918, uh, McFall traveled in an unmarked car, unmarked car with a small team, and they actually went under the Brandenburg gates on their way to the Reichstag, where they were going to talk to the German chancellor. Well, you both make very compelling arguments, although I'm going to have to go with Merle's, because 
Because there were so many words. <laughs> right, right. And he said, Parisa Plutz. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think <laughs> William Allen White died before uh, Eisenhower ran for president. Yes, William Allen White did, but William Lindsay did not. Did not pay close attention. <laughs> there you go. Miss that. I was focusing on I'm still going to go with Merle. Yes, mine is false. <laughs> ah, I've done this twice. I'm always wrong. Uh, no, that's a good try. That's a good again, try. But I would like to say Quadriga one more time. I know. Quadriga and Pariser Plus. Yeah. That's the funnest part. All right. Well, thanks, Mary. Uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. In commemoration of Veterans Day, we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. Designed by the Asian-American sculptor Maya Lin, this memorial was like nothing seen before to commemorate a war unlike any other. Come back in two weeks when we connect White to the wall. An advocate for art, peace, and the American soldier, what would White have thought of the Vietnam Memorial today? That concludes episode 145, Barbarism. If you would like to see this tiny barber's chair or images of depressed Kansans during the Civil War, go to our website, kshs.org. Let us hear from you. Post a comment on our Kansas Museum of History Facebook page or complete a podcast survey on our website. Come back in two weeks when Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman examines a Navy uniform worn by a Kansan during World War I. Most World War I soldiers returned from the war with stories of Europe, but this soldier spent his days patrolling the coast of California. Find out why in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.